God changes your life, changes your thoughts, changes your desires, and changes your interests, and it comes out of God's Word. It's really learning to know God out of His Word. You're listening to the Faith Matters Podcast with Steve McKinley. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the last episode of March. For this whole month, we've been focusing on Old Testament history, and we've been looking at historical evidence for some very big events in the Old Testament. And our special guest for the month has been Tom Baker. We're glad to have you, Tom, and we're going to be be sorry to see you go. But we're going to go out with a bang here today. And so this will be the best episode yet. Uh, We'd actually planned on having viewer questions, and Tom, we haven't gotten any of those questions, so I'm going to have to pull out my stumper question here this week and see if I can uh, stump you and watch you squirm. No, not quite, but uh, (laughs) Tom does uh, have his own topic here today. What are you going to talk about today, Tom? Well, we are going to be looking at briefly evidence for the times of the judges, and so Basically, the period between the conquest of Joshua, that's found in the book of Joshua, all the way up to the time of the beginning of the kings. So Saul and David and Solomon, that period. So the period in between those two events. Okay, very interesting. And uh, I should mention that uh, Tom is uh, going to school at the at the at Trinity College right now, studying archaeology. Okay. And uh, you're just about to finish up, and you're writing your dissertation right now. Yeah. And so you're um, up to your neck in in work right oh, now. Oh, yeah. it's not not too bad. Nearly there on the home stretch now. So glad, okay, be glad when it's over with and done. So okay, very good. And uh, we should mention your YouTube channel. It's Gospel and Spade on YouTube. If you look. Um, on YouTube, and I'll leave a link above this uh, video. Do you want to say anything about your YouTube channel? No, uh, just besides, <laughs> encourage you to have a look. If you like what you see and you hear, please do subscribe, leave a like, comment. If you do have suggestions or anything you might want to see or want me to do in the future, feel free to just let me know and I'll take it into consideration. So, Gospel and Spade, I encourage you to go and have a look. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned that uh, archaeology is a rapidly developing field. There's always stuff in the news coming out uh, from really relating to the Bible, biblical archaeology. And, uh, Tom, I don't know if you saw this recent uh, article that was in the news. There was an archaeological find um, in the desert outside of Jerusalem. Did you see this? Yeah. If you're talking about um, them, they found uh, some more fragments of... uh, Old Testament books in the Judean No, desert. no, this was actually a mummy that they oh, found okay. in, in the desert outside there, Jerusalem. I think it was like an amateur archaeologist that found it, oh. and he dug it up. And uh, he did some initial analysis on it himself, but he thought he better contact a museum and have it professionally done. Okay. And so he actually contacted a museum in, in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and, um, and he told them this is a 3,500-year-old mummy, um, that died of a heart attack. The man had died of a heart attack. Yeah, I think I heard something. You, it, it just shows you. Did you hear about this? I think I've vaguely heard about it, but there's well, just so much. Well, the, the museum was a little bit skeptical, but they went ahead and received the mummy anyway. And uh, they were quite amazed that this man had done such a detailed study, although he didn't have any x-ray equipment or anything like that. And they just contacted the guy and they said, how, how did you pinpoint with exactness that this guy died 3,500 years ago of a heart attack? Okay. And he said, well, it wasn't too hard. He said, I actually um, 
found a little piece of parchment in the mummy's hand. And he was able, of course, to read the old language. Yeah. And he pulled it out, and, and it said, 10,000 shekels on Goliath. <laughs> I say that. That's, that's a good one, all right. The guy died of a heart attack. Yeah. Oh, no, that's funny. That's a good he, one. He put 10,000 10, shekels, probably his life savings, on Goliath. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. Not not a good bet. No, that know. wouldn't be a good bet, all right. No, no, that wouldn't he be. He was probably kind of shocked. <laughs> you know, not the outcome he was expecting no. when Goliath went down. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That's a good one. But um, no, but that that uh, there are actually exciting um, things yeah. coming out in the news. Probably not that one, but uh, I actually didn't make that up. Uh, I guess that. I guess that. Hear, have you heard that one before? Uh, no, I've never heard that one. That's <laughs> okay. news to me. I have to remember that. <laughs> now I do actually have a question for you. This isn't so much a stumper question. This is not intended to stump you, um, and uh, this is a legitimate question that I'll ask you before you jump into the period of the judges. But mm -hmm. after the period of the, of the judges, uh, this has actually been on my mind and uh, it's, it's actually been a question with me and uh, you hear it from time to time. Mm -hmm. Solomon's kingdom was such a glorious kingdom, mm -hmm. you know, and Solomon was, um, you know, basically world renowned in his yeah. day for his wisdom and things. Mm -hmm. Outside of the Bible, is there any evidence for Solomon's reign? The thing is, as far as we know, it would be very hard to pinpoint directly evidence for the reign of Solomon because we lack inscriptions, say, on monuments to pinpoint Solomon's reign. You see, you know, they have been found in the city of David in Jerusalem where Solomon would have reigned from in Jerusalem, uh, what are known as proto-aleolic capitals. In other words, decorative pieces that went on top of uh, pillars in a palace. Oh, okay. Now, these were found years ago by an archaeologist, Kath uh, Kathleen Kenyon. And what happened is she found these, and these were in the style of uh, that uh, the Phoenicians would have done. The Phoenicians were a people who lived to the north of Israel, modern-day Lebanon. They would have come from Tyre and Zidon. But what the Bible does tell us is that when David and Solomon David built his palace there in Jerusalem and Solid, Solomon expanded the palace and built the, the temple at Jerusalem and other things. They hired the Phoenicians to do certain things like stonecraft and certain jobs like that. So the thing is, these were found in the city of David where the Bible says the palace of David and Solomon was and where the temple was. So that is an indirect piece of evidence, I believe, that would help to point towards the authenticity of Solomon. But as far as Solomon existing, you know, the only way we could you could prove that, say, definitively, archaeologically speaking, is if you found an inscription. And in Egypt, there's loads of inscriptions because they're obsessed with writing their names and deeds and everything else. Not so in other places. And so in honesty it's hard to directly prove that Solomon reigned. That doesn't mean he didn't reign. Mm -hmm. That just means, in honesty, we don't have that evidence at the moment. But there is Phoenician artwork yeah. that kind of fits into yeah. the story of his reign. Exactly. And the fact is, even an indirect piece of evidence is that there was a temple built on the Temple Mount there on Jerusalem, mm -hmm. which Solomon built the temple there. Okay. Now, of course, you can't excavate on top of the Temple Mount because of the with it being con so contentious an area. Mm -hmm. But it's known that there was a temple there, and the Bible tells us who built the temple. Solomon did. Okay. So yeah. it's indirect. I wish I could say, 
yes, here's an inscription. Now, for David, there are inscriptions. There's oh, yeah. two inscriptions. Mm-hmm. You have one, the Tel Dan Stele, and you also have uh, the Moabite stone, Mo- Moabite stone, which mentions the house of David. Okay. So David's royal yeah, and lineage. Solomon was his son, it, so it's not a great leap to, yeah, exactly. to, to, to get to Solomon. So no point in saying that there is evidence when there isn't. But like I said, absence of evidence is not evidence for of absence. Okay, so, very good. No. Well, Tom, you didn't. I didn't stump you with that no. one. And uh, there is no end to your knowledge. There is no, no limit to your knowledge. Oh, so. I, I only <laughs> wish. I only wish. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, okay, I got my question in anyway. <laughs> Uh, hopefully your questions have been answered through this. We haven't gotten any, but uh, if you have any questions, feel free to go ahead and share them. We will have Tom back in the future. But for today, Tom, can you maybe introduce the period of the judges? What exactly is the period of the judges? Well, basically the judges period, as I mentioned previously, was the period of time from when Joshua died and you read about the events of the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua, all the way up to just roughly the time that Saul became king over Israel. Because God did not at first tell Israel when they went into Canaan they were to have a king. They were to have judges. God was their king. The judge was under God. And the judge was meant to administer justice and right and deal with issues legally that came up in religious matters. But also, later on, the Bible tells us that God planned for there to be a king. I believe that king was David, but they got a bit impatient. He gave them Saul. But one way or another, the judges period is that time in between. Now, roughly speaking, it's about 400 years. So Mm -hmm. from about the death of, from, so that is about 1400 BC to about 1050 BC. So that time period is roughly the time of the judges. And just for reference, who who are maybe some of the most uh, well-known, who are some of the names that we might have heard of, yeah. of the judges? Well, Sam- I can, I can yeah. think of at least one. Yeah, yeah that one. There's Samson, <laughs> there's Gideon, there's Barak, there's mm-hmm. uh, Shamgar, there's Ehud, there's, uh, there is a load of different judges. M- most people know Samson and right. Gideon. Yeah, even if you don't know much about the Bible, I'm sure you've heard of Samson. He yeah. was... I think the last or one of the last yeah. judges. The correct? last judge was uh, the prophet Samuel. Samuel, Samuel would have been the last judge, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So as far as the judges period goes, I think I mentioned this previously, but we always consider that when we're looking at evidence for periods, we have to consider the amount of time that's passed by since that took place. So the judges, the end of the judges came about, what, 3,000 years ago? Now, like I said, what remains from that period? Archaeology, I've mentioned previously, is basically durable rubbish from civilizations. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that rubbish looks great, some of it looks very humble, but that's what it is, the durable rubbish of a civilization that's long gone. And over time, it gets destroyed, it gets worn down, it gets stolen, it gets reused. And so the further we remove ourselves from those events, the harder it is to find evidence for the judges period. And you know, I, I just uh, got done reading judges actually mm-hmm. as it happens. And uh, I'm pretty sure there are references in, in the book of judges to the fact that many people were still living in tents during that time. Yeah. They had not yeah. built permanent structures. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And that's one of the reasons why I believe the evidence for the times of the judges is scanty. And it is. Mm-hmm. And honest, yeah. no point saying that there's heaps and heaps and heaps when there's not, because that would be dishonest. 
But the thing is, there is indirect evidence to show that Israel was in the land of Canaan at that time and that they were slowly but surely making an impact upon the nation upon the land of Canaan. Now, what we have to consider is is when God told Israel to go into the land of Canaan, he told them to either wipe out the Canaanites or to drive them out because of their sins. Now, we can't go into all of the reasons why God wanted them to do that. To put it bluntly, the Canaanites were a wicked nation who, even amongst their neighbors, were seen as being bad. They worshipped false gods. They sacrificed their children to idols. They were immoral. They were wicked. God judged them by sending Israel in to take over the land. And that goes along with God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give them Canaan. But what we have to understand is, is that at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua tells us that before his death, he says in the last chapter of Joshua, he says, look, you guys, God has given you this land. You still have to conquer a lot of it. You've conquered a good chunk of it. The Canaanites are basically subdued. You, If you just push on, you'll take the rest of the land if you have faith in the Lord. Well, the problem is Israel didn't do that. In fact, they failed to take all the land that God wanted them to take. The land was meant to go from the Red Sea in the, to the south all the way to the river Euphrates in the north. They never got done that. They took only a fraction of what was meant to be theirs. They didn't drive out Philistines and so on. But the thing is, God told the nation, he said, I have given you a land where you basically haven't done any of the work. I've given you the Canaanites' houses. I've given you their fields. I've given you their vineyards. I've given you their olive trees. I've given you their cities and towns. Most of the towns that when uh, in the land of Canaan were just re-inhabited by the Jews, most of the houses and so on. And so what we have to consider is, is, would we really be able to tell the difference between a Canaanite and an Israelite in that time? Mm, that's a good question, yeah. Well, would, we wouldn't really be able to tell the difference because they were, not. Yeah, they were using the same houses, the same fields, probably the same equipment. In fact, later on, we see that the Israelites even started worshipping the same gods mm. of the Canaanites. Mm. And so what we need to consider is, is that where Israel became dominant in the land of Canaan, which was mostly in the hill countries, they struggled with the valleys and that because the Canaanites had chariots and so on, which were difficult for them to deal with. Israelites didn't have chariots and things like that at that point, so the chariot was like the tank of its day. But where Israel did inhabit, they just took over. So how could we tell the difference? Mm. We couldn't really. Yeah. And it would take a while for them to establish themselves as a distinct cultural group, physically speaking, in the land. Mm. Because remember, they've been in the wilderness, so they've been in Egypt for a long time. They haven't had to have certain things or do certain things. They didn't have to carry big old pots and containers around with them in the wilderness because God gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them what they needed. Mm -hmm. But when they got into Canaan, they needed to establish themselves materially. Mm, yeah. And so we need to consider that. People say, well, there's no evidence for the times of the, in the times of the judges for Israel being there. 
but how could we tell the difference? Yeah, you wouldn't <clears throat> wouldn't necessarily expect uh, a lot of evidence to be there. No, no, and it would look exactly the same as a Canaanite. Yeah. So what would be the difference? And there is evidence of yeah. Canaanites living there. There's yeah, lots of evidence. No yeah. one doubts the Canaanites were there. Yeah. But the Israelites just used their stuff for a long time. Mm -hmm. Houses, equipment, vineyards, fields. Why not? Because God gave it to them and he promised that. Right. But there are sort of subtle evidences that show that something was changing. Now, now, subtle evidences are often very important because, for instance, archaeologists have found at multiple sites in Canaan that there was a decrease in pig bones during that time period of the judges. You may say, what's, what's a pig bone? Why is that important to me in understanding the times of the judges? Well, the pig as an animal was a very, you could say, cost-effective form of meat for most civilizations, mm -hmm. even still to this very day. But what happened is, though, Israel was told by God that one of the animals, the meat they could not eat from, was pork. It was an unclean animal. It wasn't in their kosher diet. God had forbidden it eaten of pork for his people. And so what you see in the times of the judges is that at different sites you find a lot of pig bones, but then all of a sudden there's a dramatic decrease, as if something changed. Mm. I wonder what that is. Mm. Maybe a people who weren't allowed to eat pork. Now, of course, we've got to remember there were still Canaanites in the land, and some of the Jews probably just didn't do as they were told anyway. And if they worshipped idols, you know, and God told them not to, they're probably going to eat pork too when they're not meant to. Mm -hmm. So that shows a distinct cultural difference, I believe, mm, in their diet. Because what we eat here in Ireland may be different, say, to what someone eats in America or in Asia or and so on. So that's subtle. So are we able to tell, like, for how long of a period this this went on? Or or were, was there, are there pig bones found up to a certain period and then none after? No, there's always some found there, but it decreases dramatically. And it does, and it continues mm. on like that for centuries. Oh, okay. So it does show something drastic changed. Mm, interesting. Also, another thing that's interesting is that in excavations at sites in Israel, they have found what are called collar-rimmed pifoi. Now, a pifoi is basically a container. It could have oil, it could have, say, food or grain or whatever it is. And these were basically big clay pots. Mm. Now, you may say, well, well, that's the sort of containers they used in the ancient world. Correct. But the thing is, these containers, they were very sort of basic when compared to other surrounding cultures. And you may say, well, what's the point? Well, the thing is, consider this, Israel up until this point, for 40 years, they hadn't been carrying big old clay containers with them. They were in the wilderness, mm -hmm. they had their food given to them by God, they had the water they needed. But when they came into the land of Canaan, what would one of the things they would need? Right off, they'd need the, the pots, yeah. the big containers. Now, just because they didn't use them in the wilderness didn't mean they didn't know how to, how to make them. But they just need them, so you just don't do it. Mm. But now they would need to make sort of that sort of container. Mm -hmm. And over and time, you start off with more basic functional things. Then as you get better and you get more skilled, usually the products improve. And that's what you see in Canaan at that period. Oh, okay. Basic pottery, mm. functional, but it improves over time. Mm. Whereas okay. the surrounding nations were more fancy. Okay. They, they were using them all the time. 
Also, I mentioned this previously in the Exodus um, uh, podcast we did, so I encourage you to go and have a look at this if you have time, is you also find in this period an increase in the use of four-room houses. Okay. Remember we mentioned that, yes. how in Avaris in Egypt, they found is what is seemed to be the housing of the Israelites, four-room houses. That was kind of a Semite style, yeah. was yeah. it, of yeah. building? Not an Egyptian style, a very distinctively <clears throat> Jewish style of building a house. Mm -hmm. So these are sort of subtle things that at first glance you may look at and just overlook. But there are, I believe, more, you could say, dramatic pieces of evidence to help back up the account of the judges. And one I can think of off the bat has to do with a certain infamous king of Moab called Eglon. Now, if you've read the Bible, you see that one of the early stories of the judges is the story of how God delivered the Israelites from the Moabites, who were a neighboring kingdom, who were nearby to the land of Canaan. And he used a man called Ehud, a left-handed man, to remove King Eglon. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Yeah, Eglon is remarkable because he was an extremely fat man. Mm -hmm. And Ehud mm -hmm. comes in and, got, and he assassinates Eglon. Mm -hmm. He does it with a very long knife. Yeah, he can seal the knife yeah. in his right thigh. Yeah. And they, they might have checked the left when yeah. they were checking him for weapons. Yeah. But he was left-handed. Yeah, so exactly. And you didn't really left and left like left-handed people. They were left-handed people then. They're left-handed people now. But they wouldn't have looked on his right side because mm -hmm. they're expecting the sword to be on a on uh, over on, on the, the left, left because yeah. that's where you pull it out from. Yeah. So Eglon, the Bible story tells us, was killed by Ehud, and Ehud delivers the Jews from the control of the Moabites. But what's noticeable is the Bible tells us that Eglon made his palace in a place called the City of Palm Trees. Mm -hmm. Now, the City of Palm Trees is just another name and given to the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho, we believe, was destroyed at the beginning of, conqu of uh, the conquest of Canaan by Joshua. Mm -hmm. And for a time, it went uninhabited. Later on, the Jews would rebuild the City of Jericho in the times of the kings. But that's centuries later. God had forbid them from doing that. They shouldn't have done it then anyway, but they did it. But what happens is Eglon made a palace there because that's where Ehud went to pay his respects, supposedly, to go and see Eglon at Jericho. And so what happens is you would expect that there would have been some sort of palace structure there. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened is, is in the 1930s, an archaeologist called John Gerstang, he went to Jericho. He excavated at the site of Jericho and he found a small palace structure on the southeastern corner of the tell of Jericho. Mm. A tell is a ruined mound of a city. Mm. And so when John Gerstein excavated this, he found this small palace with surrounding buildings. And at first he didn't put the two together. But he, at first he came to the conclusion that he wasn't sure what this was. But he actually then decided that this could have been the palace of the Moabite king Eglon. Hmm. And, and was that a, um, an unusual palace? 
Uh, I mean, the style and things like that. Was it unusual? No, it was it was small, but you would ex sort of expect that because that wasn't Eglong's main place of residence. That would have been where he would have been to do business, to you know, to control the land and to receive taxes or gifts or diplomatic information from his subjugated peoples. Okay. Though they did find that there was, it had an impressive antechamber or an entrance room. It had an audience hall. It also had a private room which had its own personal indoor toilet. Now, you know, tell us also, what's a toilet? Luxury. Uh, yeah, luxury <laughs> item. And this palace had that. Hmm. They've also found, they, John Gerstang also found in this palace, he found expensive pottery which could only have been afforded something by someone who had money and influence. And also it found clay tablets with administrative details. Mm. And so that's what would have happened at a palace. A king would have had these luxuries and there would have been evidence of political business going on there. Mm -hmm. That's what you found at this palace. And John Gerstang decided, thought that this was Eglon's palace. And it makes sense. Jericho was destroyed at the beginning of the Joshua's conquest. Then later, Judges tells us Eglon made a palace there, which he had went to and where Eglon was killed. And then later, that was abandoned. In fact, it was very soon abandoned, John Gerstang tells us. I wonder why that was. Oh, because maybe... Eglon was killed and there was no need for the palace to be there. And the maybe, Jews, maybe he died. <laughs> he died suddenly, suddenly, all of a sudden. Exactly. Who would build a palace and abandon it quickly unless there was a good reason for mm -hmm. it? And then later the place was re-inhabited by the Jews. And when, when he was killed, that was kind of the collapse then of the Moabite reign over Israel. Yes. So a lot of the officials would have been killed. Their army was decimated. Exactly. And basically they were... Almost wiped out, right? Yeah, exactly. So I believe that's a good piece of evidence to help prove the existence of Eglon. So, so continue on with the theme of Eglon. Now, there is an interesting uh, detail within the story of Ehud that has caused some amount of speculation. I don't know if you guys have ever considered what I'm about to tell you. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But in the story of Eglon's death, it tells us how Ehud came in with his sword on his side. No one noticed it because they were patting the other side to see if there was a weapon there because they didn't expect a left-handed man to come in because left-handed men were quite unusual even in those at times. And he goes into the king. He gives him his gift and talks to him like in, as an embassy would. And then Ehud, of course, says, I've got a secret message for you, Eglon. Eglon says, oh, you know, I want to hear this. And he sends his guards out. Well, Ehud does the deed. He stabs him. He kills the king because of his wickedness, which God wanted him to do. And God was the judge who had decided Eglon needed to be gotten rid of. And there's kind of a gory detail that uh, yeah. he was a big man. and Yes, he was a, you could say he was a very corpulent man. In other words, he was extremely fat. The Bible actually mentions that detail. And when Ehud put his dagger into him, the story. he literally, the dagger was supposedly like the length from about his elbow up to the tip of it, a cubit about. Oh, yeah. And he, well, he was so fat that cubit the cubit length is yeah. that's quite long. He was so fat that the, da the dagger got stuck. The in shaft and, and all just went. Yeah, clean in, pleaded, and, and he, he couldn't, couldn't get, get out. out. Yeah, he was a goner. But anyway, Eglon's dead. But the Bible tells us some interesting details. It tells us that basically Ehud then locked the door, 
walked out, escaped from the palace, and only a few minutes, a while later, did the guards of the king get embarrassed because they thought at first he was actually just using the toilet. There's a, euphemistically, it's, they said, oh, he's covering his feet. <laughs> now, that's just a way of saying he's gone, he's doing his business. Mm-hmm. He's taking care of business. <clears throat> and actually, that is also, term is also used with the King, king Saul when he was nearly, uh, well, he was potentially trapped by David. He was covering his feet. In other words, mm. he was using the bathroom. Okay. Oh. And so the guards at, uh, at, at Eglon's palace, they uh, they waited a long time for him. Yeah. And they were kind of ashamed or embarrassed to go and knock on the door and say, hey, is everything okay? Yeah, right? exactly. So they kind of waited and waited. Because, you know, you've got to give a man his, his time to do his business. Right, right. Especially if you're a king. But what happened is they got to the point where they realized something's wrong here. Not even, No, he shouldn't be in there that long by himself. And so what they did is they got a key and they unlocked the door and found he was dead. Ehud had scarpered away. He was gone. Now, people wondered, how on earth did Ehud actually do that? How did he get out without anyone noticing this? Mm-hmm. And that's caused maybe some, uh, it's caused some people, scholars, uh, a lot of... Uh, Grief trying to figure it out. Yeah. Now, the thing is, there could be a possible explanation for that. We believe the Bible is accurate in the details it gives. Now, some people have speculated. Remember I was telling you that at palace there was a, a private toilet. Some people think that one of the possible theories was is that when Ehud got killed Eglon, that he may have just removed the toilet seat, a stone toilet seat, and jumped down into the latrine. Now, it would have had to be a hole in the ground that could be emptied, you know, otherwise it would get all that through the sewage pipe. Basically. Yeah, basically the hole in the ground where the sewage went. Not a pleasant job, but someone would have to do it. So yeah. some people think he ran off. But there is another alternative. Now, at that time period, there was a locking system in place, which is referred to as a Homeric lock. Hmm. Now, a Homeric lock is basically this. What you would do is you would close the door behind you. Say you're in a room. You close the door and you could lock the room from the inside like you do today. But what you could also do is you could go outside of the room, close the door and pull basically a piece of string or a lever strap. And that would lock the door from the outside. The only way then you could unlock the door was either from the inside or from the outside with a key. Now, a key is not like, you know, we have a little key today. It was basically a big pole that you stick in a hole in the door and sort of push it down and sort of slide the locking system open. Oh, interesting. And now that system was used at that time period in the Near East. In fact, it was even used up until the Greek period. Oh, okay. It sort of fell out of fashion because, well... It's a handy thing to open from the inside, but not a very handy thing to open from the outside. And, you know, most locking systems are only reserved for, like, special places like palaces and that. Some people have speculated that maybe the demise of Eglon might have had something to do with this door going out of fashion. Mm -hmm. You don't want a king being stuck in a room where the guards can't get in very quickly. No. So... What I think that shows, now, can we prove either one beyond doubt? No. Wood rots, the metal would have gone, the palace was destroyed. We just don't know. But what I believe this shows you is that there are good possible explanations for stories like 
Ehud and Eglon. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bible knows what it's talking about. Yeah. And I believe personally the Homeric lock solution just makes the most sense. Okay. Because it does tell you in the story that they needed a key to open the door. Mm, so it was something in use at the time. Yeah. And uh, it's called an anachronism, right? When you uh, when you talk about a detail that's kind of out of place for its time. Yes. And uh, in this case, uh, you can't accuse the Bible of that because yeah. the technology was there. Yeah, there were locking systems. And available to work what the Bible is describing. Yeah. And so that's... And there is, uh, and the thing is, uh, one of the things about people saying a lot of things in the Bible are, uh, are anachronisms is that they often use that to try to explain away certain things, mm -hmm. like camels being in Genesis and this thing happening and that thing. And But, you know, we should, you know, if we're Bible-believing Christians, we should give the Bible the benefit of the doubt, you it's, know. It's kind of just like a wave of the hand to, to get rid of inconvenient facts. Yeah. Anachronism, uh, you know. But we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss stories yeah. and just call it an anachronism. Yeah, exactly. go back and look at the details and look at the evidence that's there. Yeah, I believe so because, uh, you know, as Christians, we believe it's the Word of God. And when it talks about something, it knows what it's talking about. But we should give any document the benefit of the doubt until we can prove it. Uh, isn't untrue right just, uh, just like we do with any historical uh, documents that are found ancient documents yeah. but the bible gets unfair scrutiny right because it claims to be the word of god mm -hmm. and now other documents get <laughs> scrutinized too for good reason like as i'm studying ancient history you you realize that ancient historians may not be necessarily being uh, fabricating stuff or like deliberately lying but there are inconsistencies but mm. From what we're seeing, the Bible, I believe, is internally consistent. Mm. So it's a good point. Yeah, but mm -hmm. be careful of just scholars saying that's an anachronism. Mm -hmm. You say, well, why do you say that? I ask that question. Why do you think that? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just they don't like the other conclusion. Right. But Or the point mm. that you've made in the, many times in the past that it could just be a lack of evidence, yeah. which is not a good yeah. uh, thing to draw conclusions on, a lack of evidence. Yeah. Yeah, there, there literally there are people in prison in the who have gone to prison in the past based on the lack of evidence who were found out later on when the evidence came out that they were innocent, and mm -hmm. vice versa. People who have yeah. been free only until more evidence came up to show that they were guilty. Right. We have to be very careful of that. Yes. Yeah. So, just to give you even some more evidence, another infamous story in the Book of Judges is is the rise of King Abimelech. Now, Abimelech was not meant to be king. He made himself king. And the Bible tells us that he, he was made king by the people of Shechem. Now, Shechem was a very important city in the Old Testament period. It's mentioned constantly. You know, we always think of Jerusalem and Jericho and that, but Shechem was very important. Mm -hmm. And so, in Judges, it tells us that Abimelech ruled his kingdom from Shechem. Now, what we need to realize too, and I mentioned this previously, the Bible I don't believe I believe is not just accurate in historical details, it's also accurate in geographical details. Mm. You know, there is an ancient city called Shechem. You can go there today. It's the modern Arab city of Nablus. You can go there. Interesting. You you can go to Mount Tabor and the Jezreel Valley where Gideon where Barak and um, Deborah fought against Sisera. You can go to Jericho. You can go to these places. They're there. They're real legitimate places. Mm. 
And with Abimelech, it tells us a very interesting detail about his story. It says that the king of when the Shechemites got tired of Abimelech, they wanted to overthrow him and get rid of him because they were sick and tired of him ruling over him, even though they'd made him king. And so what Abimelech does is he comes back in anger and he starts to destroy the city of Shechem. Now, at Shechem, there was a temple or a sanctuary called the t uh, Temple of Baal Beareth. Now, Baal Beareth means the Lord of the Covenant. That's what it means, literally. The sanctuary of the Lord of the Covenant. Lord me. Baal is Lord uh, Beareth Covenant. Mm. So what you see in that is that that's interesting because at the end of the book of Joshua, it tells us that towards the end of Joshua's life, he made Israel promise to serve the Lord. And what he did is at Shechem, this is where he did it, he set up a memorial stone with the words that Israel had spoken to remind them of what they had said. Now, they failed at that, not because of Joshua, but because of their own will. What happens is then, is it seems like that the Israelites, because of their idolatry, they took that memorial and they started to worship that place in an ungodly way. In essence, the place became a place of idolatry. And they were constantly doing that. They did that with the brazen serpent that Moses made. They did that with other things too. The Israelites were always into idolatry. That, that's essentially the, the story of the Old Testament, right? It's yeah. Israel being commanded to be the people of God, but always turning away from him and and uh, turning toward idolatry and false gods. Exactly. And it just shows us that wasn't God's fault because he was good to them. He was faithful. It was their fault. They were mm -hmm. responsible and they reaped what they sowed. Yeah, during ended those. up in the, the, the exile of the the people of Israel yep. into Assyria and Babylon. Yep, exactly. So. That's what happened. And God told them that would happen if they did that. Right. So, yeah. you know, God promised them good if they did what was right. He promised them judgment if they did what was wrong. Mm -hmm. God always keeps his promises for good and for bad. Yeah, an important lesson for us today, actually. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> a good uh, theological lesson for us today. But what we need to realize, too, is that this sanctuary of Baal Beareth, it was destroyed. Now, the thing is, at Shechem, you can visit there today. Not a lot of people go there because it's in, a, a, it's in the West Bank. And so it's not often in the tourist trails because, you know, it's Palestinian controlled. You can go there. But at this sanctuary, they found in front of the sanctuary this what appears to be a, the remains of a large standing stone. There's actually three standing stones there, two in front of the uh, two at the entry on either side of the entrance of the sanctuary, and also one in front of and further in front of the sanctuary. Mm. Now the thing is, over time it's been damaged, it's been vandalized, but some people have speculated that that could well be the stone that Joshua erected there at Shechem. Wow. Now we can't prove that beyond doubt, mm -hmm. but. The Bible tells us Joshua set up an important memorial stone at Shechem. Mm -hmm. Later on, a false temple to the god Baal Beareth is set up, the Lord of the Covenant. Joshua made a covenant with the people there at Shechem. He set up the stone as a memorial. Put the pieces together. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. what would you logically come conclusion would you come to? Now, the problem is because it's been damaged and vandalized over the years we we can't tell what would have been written on it 
Oh, so there, <clears throat> there are no legible inscriptions. No, no legible, not. And so, and so, but draw your own conclusions. You know, don't yeah. just take my word for it, but also don't just take a scholar's word for it. Mm-hmm. Use your heads. Yeah. The Bible, you know, God, even God says, come, let us reason together. Mm-hmm. You know, God doesn't tell us to leave our brains at the door and not think. Mm-hmm. But the problem is all too often we just take someone at their word and say, well, he says it, that's good enough. It was so long ago, but again, another plausible detail that fits into the story. Yeah, and that's the thing, little small details that give away, I believe, the historicity of the judges' period. Mm, yeah. So, just to, just even to give you another incidental details, indirect details, what about the Philistines? Now, the Philistines were a people group who lived in the land of Canaan. Now, the Philistines were not Canaanites. That's why God told them, Israel, not to destroy them. He encouraged them to drive them out because they were not Canaanites. Mm. Now, the thing is, we hear about the Philistines earlier on in the book of Genesis. But then later on, by the time of the judges, they're still in the land of Canaan. And they seemingly have become more warlike, more aggressive, more expansion, uh, with more tendencies to expand. And you see that in the judges. Samson deals with the Philistines. Saul deals with the Philistines. David finally subdues the Philistines. It takes a long time. They're a persistent foe of Israel. And they tended to live on the far western side of Israel, right along the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, they lived in an area that we would call uh, Philistia. Philistia, and that's that about sense. the re- mm-hmm. the modern. Like, if you were to look on a map today, and you see uh, the Gaza Strip oh, in yeah. the south mm-hmm. of Israel, between Israel and Egypt, that would be the southern territory of the Philistines, Philistia. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, and the Philistines had five major cities. They seem to be like five city states that sort of had a loose confederacy with one another, mm. and the city states were caught were the cities of Ekron. Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. And we have modern-day Gaza today. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the other cities, we there's speculation as to where they are, mm-hmm. but we can't be known because there's no big convenience sign, this is Ashkelon, or this is so-and-so. I wish there was. But they lived on the Mediterranean coast. They were a seafaring people who were very important in the region. Now, the Bible also tells us that the Philistines, as a people group, According to Genesis chapter 10 and Amos 9, one of the minor prophets, that they came from a place called Kaftor or Kaftorim. Now, most scholars would associate Kaftor with the region of the Aegean. So that's the region of Crete, the Aegean Islands, Western Turkey, and modern-day Greece. Mm. That Roughly that region. Now, we can't pinpoint exactly where. But this makes sense because... The ancient Greeks, the Mycenaeans, and also the Minoans, who lived, the Minoans lived in Crete, the Mycenaeans lived in ancient Greece, were a seafaring people who traded. Later on, the Greeks would have colonies all across the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And culturally speaking, there are com- very strong comparisons between the Mycenaeans and the Minoans and the Philistines. Oh, okay, I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, and so it's possible that this is where the Philistines came from. Mm. Now, the Bible does tell us some details about the Philistines. It tells us that they worshipped a god called Dagon. Now, Dagon is a well-known ancient Near Eastern god. Mm. 
In fact, most of the time you see Dagon, he's represented like a fish god. Mm. He looks like a fish. He has a sort of a fish headdress, and sometimes he has a fish tail at his back. Mm, I've seen that one. Yeah. yeah. He's, and he's also the god of grain, fish, lots of other things. The gods in the ancient world had multiple jobs. But what we see is that Samson, the most famous judge, he was constantly having problems with the Philistines, and he caused them a lot of problems too. But Samson is known for, at the end of his life, having destroyed a temple of Dagon at the city of Gaza. Now, the Bible tells us that the Philistines had captured uh, Samson after after Samson's dalliances with uh, Delilah. Delilah, yeah. And the Philistines used Delilah to get to Samson. And, of course, he told him this secret, that if you cut my hair, that will, I'll lose my power. It wasn't his hair that gave him his power. It was God. But that was a sign of the covenant he made with God, which he right. broke. You know, Samson kept pushing his luck with God until yeah. finally God said, okay, I'm letting you reap what you sow. Yeah, it was a woman that got to him. It was a woman. Samson's <laughs> she got problem, it out yeah. of his, Sa- his secret. Yeah. Samson's secret. problems was women. Yeah. He didn't choose the right ones, you see, always. Yeah. He always had a funny thing for Philistine women. But they, they, they put out his eyes. Yeah. They, they captured him, put out his eyes, and, and put him into hard labor. Yeah, exactly. And, and the funny thing is, this Philistines knew where Samson's weaknesses were his eyes looking at the wrong women and they knew that oh yeah they knew some they hated him yeah but he was put in prison and the bible tells us he was made to grind grain like a donkey would you know donkeys would then in the ancient world you'd have big millstones and a donkey would be tied onto it and go around and around and around and around all day that's what he made samson samson do they humiliated him and he was the judge of israel but god after i believe samson repents God gives him back his strength, and when he's in the temple of Dagon and everyone's there having a look good gawk at Samson, what does he do? The Bible tells us he pushes down the two pillars of the temple of Dagon, and the building falls down on top of everyone and kills all of the elite of the Philistines. And the estimate is that there were a few thousand yeah. people present there, right? Yeah. And the most important of the Philistines would have been there, yeah. like you said, the elite. Yeah. Yeah. And so Samson, the Bible tells us, in his death, slew more Philistines than in his life. And that was, he literally cut off the head of the Philistines. Now, they didn't go away, but that would have hurt them. Would have crippled them for, yeah. who knows, decades. Yeah, or it would have really weakened generations, them. maybe. Exactly. Now, you may say, well, that's a nice story. What's the point? Well, the thing is, the point is how Samson destroyed the temple of the Philistines. It says he was put between the two pillars of the temple and he pushed them down and it fell down. Now, what has been found in excavations in the Holy Land at places like Tel Kassil, Tel Mikna, which is considered to be Ekron, and Tel Es-Safi, which is considered to be the city of Gath, they've discovered that Philistine temples were built around two central support and pillars. In other wow, words, no they t- take two big, probably cedar logs, they'd put them on stone pill- stone bases, and then they would hold up this, the, the roof. And, and so what would happen is, if you had a big enough man who was able to stand in the middle of that and push down those two wooden pillars, what would happen? You would bring down the house, literally. See, I always wondered how you could have that many people or such a big building to accommodate that many people and have two pillars that were close enough for men to stand between to push. Yeah. It was about... uh, The distance is relatively... If you were a big man, from what we know, 
from the temples that have been excavated there, you'd have to be quite a large man. But the problem is, you the, the temple at Gaza has never been excavated because there's a big modern city on top of it. So we don't know how close the pillars mm. were. But mm. the point is, is this was common in Philistine temples. Mm. Very common. In all that we know of so far, that's how they did things. Which shows you an important detail that the Bible knew what it was talking about in relation even to the building methods of the Philistines. Mm -hmm. So it's these little things that make sense. And, and again, this this point has been made this month as we've talked about these different things, but uh, uh, somebody coming along after the fact, you know, as is purported, yeah. having written it long after the fact, wouldn't have known yeah. about that type of building structure yeah. because that wasn't used... Yeah. That was old, yeah, that was old hat by that point in right. time. Yeah, you wouldn't know that. That would be nearly, nearly like the common idea that's bandied around by uh, by liberal scholars who reject the Bible is that the Old Testament, like and portions of it, like Judges and that, were written in some. It depends. Some say the seventh, some say the sixth, some say the fifth century. You know, it depends who you ask, and that's why yeah. I mean, don't take their word for it. They all have different opinions. Yeah, but the thing is. How would they? How would someone in the seventh or in the sixth or the fifth century know that mm -hmm. the Philistines were gone? Yeah, so it's very strong evidence for an early dating. Yeah, for the Book of Judges. And I personally believe that Judges was probably written by the prophet Samuel. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know that for sure, but there's certain hints that seem to indicate that mm -hmm. Samuel probably wrote it or he compiled it together. The from most other. likely one yeah. to yeah. have written it. Yeah. Exactly. We don't know that for sure, but that's my personal thoughts on that hmm. so yeah it how would you know you just wouldn't know right and hmm. you know to continue on with the philistines on a last point is is there I have been some interesting studies in relation to the philistines and a very well-known ancient author known as homer now most people say homer oh homer simpson from the simpsons <laughs> but you know where did homer simpson get his name from well he got his name homer from the ancient Greek epic poet mm. Homer. Mm. Now people speculate when did Homer write, and in fact, there's speculation: was it multiple Homers? Oh, it goes very confusing. But we would say Homer wrote two important poems: the Iliad and the Odyssey, mm -hmm. in relation dealing with the events surrounding the end of the Trojan War, and also the return journey of Ulysses to uh, to Greece after the Trojan Wars. Now, we can't look at the references in detail, but what we see is the Trojan Wars, It's the, the traditional date for the Trojan Wars is about the 12th century BC, about middle smack bang in the middle of the time of the judges. At the very least, the events of the Trojan War seem to have taken place then. Some people say the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey were written centuries later. We, we can't prove it beyond that. But what we know is, is that the Odyssey and the Iliad have some very interesting details that I believe ha there are parallels in the Bible. Now, this brings up the accusation, oh, well, the Bible copied Homer. But, you know, no one ever says, well, maybe, you know, Homer, uh, the Bible didn't copy Homer. Maybe the Bible was written at the nearly the same time as Homer wrote mm. or where, as, as the events took place. Mm. Like, take, for instance, now, we, now, you know, I have the references here, but the fact is, you know, we can't go and give you the whole list of numbers for ancient Greek books. But when comparing the Book of Judges 
and what happened in it with the books of Homer, whether it's the Iliad or the Odyssey, the Iliad mentions that at one point people used ox golds as weapons. Now, that's significant because in Judges chapter 3, Shamgar, one of the judges of Israel, used an ox gold as a weapon against the Philistines. Mm -hmm. The Iliad mentions the use of ox golds as weapons, makeshift weapons. Okay, wow. Also, you have the exchange of fine cloven as a commodity for exchange. You see that in the Iliad, you see it in the Odyssey. And in Judges, it tells you that when Samson made a bet with his Philistine friends, who weren't much friends, so he used them as friends, what was he exchanging with them? Fancy clothing. Clothing, yeah. Fancy clothing. And when is Homer dated to? Uh, it depends. Like I said, the events of the Trojan War, classically 12th century. Some people say the Iliad and the Odyssey was not compiled to the 8th century. But, you know, that's speculation. We so can't. there's some debate. Yeah, even there's, on, some on de that, there's some debate, you know. But people say that possibly the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey were orally passed down. And so there are a lot of things in, the ho in, in Homer's works that are clearly older and some things more modern are mixed in. So that sort of gives you the idea here that there was a bit of adaption over time. Okay. <clears throat> but we do find parallels to yeah. uh, events in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. And uh, just to just say, there's many things like that. Thunder as an ill omen. Mm. In the beginning of the story of the in First Samuel, it tells us that God sent thunder to scare the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks were also afraid of thunder as an omen. You see that in the Odyssey. You see that in the Iliad. So I just think you know there's plenty more you could look into. Mm -hmm. But these details, I believe, help to show the historicity of the Book of Judges. And that we can trust it. And, and it sounds like the final word hasn't been written on these things. Oh, no. Um, there are more excavations to do, more digging, a lot more research. And uh, I think you've mentioned in the past that uh, even a lot of the stuff that has been found has not been cataloged and yeah. examined. Yeah. So this is a fascinating field. I'm looking to, forward to hearing more, Tom. You're, this is your last week this month, but we're definitely going to have you back, I, I think, later in the year. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about it a little bit. You'll maybe talk about some New Testament yeah. events like the resurrection, which oh. I'm very excited about. Oh, yeah. So, well, I hope you've learned as much as I have with this. I, I hope this has piqued your interest about uh, Old Testament archaeology. And uh, please do keep following um, and checking out Tom's channel, Gospel and Spade, and Spade yep. on YouTube. Yeah. And uh, Tom's, you know, it doesn't have to end here. Tom's going to continue to share bits and pieces of Old Testament archaeology with us on there. Yeah. And so, well, thank you so much. And uh, do stay tuned for next week. I'm going to start a, a new series of episodes on hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus said some things that uh, made the Jews just scratch their heads and say, what is he talking about? And we're going to talk about some of those things and try to decode or, or interpret what Jesus was saying. So stay tuned for next week, and uh, we'll see you then. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Be the